Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. Happy New Year. It's Friday, January 5th, 2018. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer. He joins me today from his office in Manhattan. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Happy New Year to you. Well, very much the same to you as well. And best wishes to all of our listeners for 2018 and for our first show of this new calendar year. Let's get the question out of the way that everybody wants to know the answer to, Andrew. Did you get what you want for Christmas. <laughs> I did indeed. Uh, as did the publishing industry, it seems. Uh, they got quite a lot under the tree this year, it looks like. But the other important question, of course, is, uh, and this is something listeners will also want an answer for, how was the book business's holiday season? Not too bad, actually. You know, And of course, we won't have a better sense of how the year shook out until much later this winter, how the holiday sales, I should say, shook out until much later this winter. Uh, so our listeners might recall that the holiday season actually got off to a pretty slow start over Thanksgiving, but it ended on a pretty strong note with print unit sales up about 7% in the week that ended December 24th, 2017, Christmas Eve. Uh, that's over, of course, the comparable week in 2016, and this data is according to the outlets that report to BookScan. But what I think is worth keeping an eye on, of course, is how 2017 as a whole is shaking out. And just before Christmas, the AAP finally released its numbers for August sales, uh, which showed a slight dip in adult trade book sales, uh, at least in the print segment. And after a few months of slight upticks, ebook sales were also down again. You'll remember we were talking about whether or not ebook sales, whether they'd hit bottom and were starting to bounce back up. Well, apparently they have not yet hit bottom. Uh, they were down down again, about 8% in August. But if you're keeping score at home, the first eight months of 2017, according to the AAP sales data, overall book sales are up about 1% over 2016. And that's, of course, you know, ends in August. So we have yet to count in the big fall publishing season and holiday sales. So, you know, hopes are that 2017, when we get the final AAP numbers, will show another year of, of modest growth for publishers. But back to BookScan, because we already have their numbers for 2017. And according to BookScan, unit sales of print books rose almost 2%, I believe 1.9% uh, in change over 2016, uh, with total units sold clocking in at about 687.2 million, and that's up from about 674 million in 2016. Uh, and that increase, of course, follows an increase in 2016 of about 3.3%. So the margins are shrinking a little, 3.3% growth in 2016, 1.9% growth in 2017. But overall, the streak is still positive. Since 2013, print unit sales are actually up uh, almost 11%. So quite a streak the publishers have going here. And uh, of course, they're eager to see if they can keep that going in 2018. And uh, as it happens, we'll get reports from you throughout the year. And, you know, our weekly chats on CCC's Beyond the Book went on holiday since mid-December. And in the few weeks or so since we've been away, there have been some developments on several stories that appeared on PW's list of top stories for 2017. So as 2018 gets going, let's check in first with Milo Yiannopoulos. And late last month, the editorial notes in his manuscript for the memoir Dangerous went viral online. They were all pretty savage. What's your read on that development? and how it affects the case. 
Yeah, so the whole Milo mess, that was one of our most read stories in 2017. Uh, and our listeners may have had a chance to read some of the notes on Milo's manuscript, which indeed did go viral after Milo's editor, Mitchell Ivers, submitted an affidavit in the current court case that's underway. Basically, Ivers, in those comments, really pulled no punches. In his notes, he was bluntly telling Milo all the ways in which his draft manuscript was not funny, mean, and just plain dumb in part. And, of course, the Internet rejoiced in reading such comments. However, in terms of the lawsuit that's still out there, those comments will probably not affect the outcome because the outcome is really going to turn solely on the language in the contract. Remember, this is a a narrow breach of contract dispute. And from my perspective, the media attention paid to the editorial notes are a disaster. And not for Milo, but for Simon & Schuster and for editor Mitchell Ivers. All right, then. So the question is, Andrew, so why, from a publishing perspective, do you see this as a bad thing? After all, as you say, so many on the web just reveled in seeing Milo hit so bluntly. Yeah, well, for a few reasons. First, because, you know, speaking as a former editor myself, uh, these kinds of notes are, are not extraordinary. You know, this is kind of what the editorial process looks like. And the thing about the editorial relationship is that it can get tense, and it needs to be blunt, and it needs to be honest, and it also needs to remain private for the most part. You know, if I'm an agent or an author and I'm reading Ivers' comments, I might think, wow, pretty bad bedside manner there. Let's try to stay away from this guy and maybe submit to another editor. Or, gee, what bad judgment to give my a deal in the first place, you know, only to have this savage a beating in store for Milo when he submits the manuscript. Now, I assure you, the last place Mitchell Ivers wants to be right now is viral on the internet, with the internet, excuse me, with these comments. But the other problem is that, remember, this is a publicity-driven lawsuit. And where else are we hearing Milo's name except for coverage about this lawsuit and these editorial comments? And already we've seen Milo share his own communications and portray the relationship with Mitchell Ivers quite differently. Uh, And this is the problem with the lawsuit. Many of these affidavits are going to go public because that's what happens in these lawsuits. Things get submitted. They're made publicly available. And that gives Milo what he wants, which, of course, is a basis for publicity. And none of this really stuff really speaks to the narrow contract issues in this case. And in the Milo case, when it comes to these comments, when it comes to pretty much everything, I'd say the old adage applies. Never get in the mud with a pig. You'll both get dirty, except the pig likes it. All right. Well, when Beyond the Book returns with PW's Andrew Albanese, he'll tell us his personal pick for favorite read of 2017. The details may give you a chill. I'm Christopher Keneally for Copyright Clearance Center. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book with Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly. It's Friday, January 5th, 2018, and we are opening the new year by catching up on news that has broken since the show took a break for the holidays. Right before Christmas, Andrew, you broke a story of a settlement in a lawsuit that got some attention in the library world in 2017. The Louisiana State University Libraries were suing science publisher Elsevier. What were the allegations and what's come of them now? 
Yeah, that's right. So it was a pretty big story in the library community, and our listeners may recall this all went down back in May of 2017 when uh, the Louisiana State University Libraries went public with a lawsuit against Elsevier that revealed that Elsevier was blocking IP addresses from its vet school library, uh, stopping students in the vet school library from accessing the library's main Elsevier subscription. But after I wrote that story, well, it started getting a little weird. Uh, For one, Almost within a month or two after this story started, I tried to get some updates, and LSU officials simply stopped returning messages. Uh, and when I spoke to Elsevier officials, basically, and off the record for the most part, no one will put a name to this, they all said that, don't worry about it. This is just a contract negotiation. There's nothing really to see here. And that now appears to be true. Uh, in fact, I found no evidence that the lawsuit, which was you know filed and announced by LSU, ever moved forward at all. And after pressing for weeks, LSU officials and Elsevier officials confirmed that the issue had, in fact, been resolved somehow. Neither side would say actually how. So you don't sound too pleased with the resolution. Well, I am pleased that the two sides are no longer in court, Uh, but I am left with a lot of questions here and left to draw some unsettling conclusions about the settlement. And and here's why. You know, basically, the suit came after LSU officials realized that the vet school had a separate Elsevier contract that was largely duplicative. Most of the journal access needed by the vet school was, in fact, available through the main library subscription. So librarians let that vet school library lapse. Uh, that deal appeared to be worth about $400,000 a year, and instead, they sought to just add 19 journals needed by the 600 or so vet students and faculty to the main subscription the library had, which would have been an additional cost of about $35,000. But Elsevier refused to add those 19 journals and that $35,000 worth of content to the main subscriptions, and instead started blocking students from the vet school library from accessing the main Elsevier subscription. And what's troubling is that in their lawsuit, uh, and in a press release from the Association of Research Libraries, the point was made over and over again that this was a suit about LSU being a good steward of public funds. LSU, of course, is a public university. But now both sides say the resolution is confidential. And I think that's unacceptable. You can't say we're standing up to be good public stewards of public funds and then not allow the public to see how you ultimately are handling those public funds. So I reported on this story you know, at the request of LSU and ARL's invitation. And I hate to think that the position that they took here in the filing of this suit was just for the headlines and just for the leverage, because there are a lot of libraries out there that are probably in the same position with Elsevier. So while the lawsuit is now over, I'm not exactly done with the reporting just yet. I'm still going to try to find out exactly how this case was resolved. And you can look for reports and details of the resolution on the Publishers Weekly website sometime this month. All right. So two months ago, Andrew, when you were running through the most anticipated books in early 2018, you mentioned a title by Michael Wolf, Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House. Now, indeed, that book is making pretty big waves this week. That's right. And in Monday's issue, we'll have a piece on that book and the reaction to it. Most notably, of course, that the White House has now sent a cease and desist letter to Wolf's publisher, Henry Holt, which is a Macmillan imprint, trying to stop publication of the book. On one hand, you know, that's really great publicity for Holt. I don't know why they would do that. But at the same time, boy, it's a foolish and dangerous step, I think, for the White House to take. And we'll see how that plays out. But I'll just say that I'm not at all surprised. You know, Trump has pretty consistently attacked the free press. So I suppose it was only a matter of time before he went after a book publisher. 
And on this first edition of our program this year, Andrew, let's close on a positive note. I think we can find one. I'm sure we can. So PW's staff annually picks the best books that they have personally read in 2017, the ones they enjoy them for themselves, not just for work. And so tell us about yours. Yeah, so that, that's a great idea. Let's start 2018 off on a positive note. And one of my favorite features of the year, which you can read now on the PW website, in which I and my fellow staffers reveal the best books that we read in 2017. And I'll just offer one note here. These are not books that were published in 2017, uh, and they're not our best books, but these are the best books that we read personally. And indeed, there are a lot of backlist gems on this list and uh, a few books that are not coming out until early in 2018. And, you know, we all work around books every day at PW. Uh, if you've ever seen my desk, it's just covered with books all the time. But we don't always get to talk with one another about the books we personally enjoyed. So I really always relish learning a little more about my colleagues. Uh, and I think readers will enjoy learning more about the taste of the PW staff, too. Well, I, I can attest I have seen that desk and it is covered, <laughs> covered uh, like piled high, I should say, with books. And I guess like you, I, I do wonder what it is you read when, when you don't have to read and you've sort of held back. You haven't told us what the title is yet. So I'll take a stab and imagine it's a political book. <laughs> well, you'd normally be on target with that. But in fact, just the opposite this year. My favorite book of the year, which is actually just now being published this month by Simon & Schuster, is called The Stowaway, A Young Man's Extraordinary Adventure to Antarctica uh, by a documentary film maker named Lori Gwynn Shapiro. Uh, and the book tells the true story of a 17-year-old Billy Goronsky, who's a young Polish boy growing up in New York City, who is dreaming of this life of adventure. And he actually sneaks aboard uh, Rear Admiral Richard Byrd's 1928 expedition to Antarctica. You know, the book is deeply researched and it's tightly written, and it really is nonfiction storytelling at its finest. And not only is Billy's personal story remarkable, so too are the details of Byrd's incredible voyage to, the, to Antarctica. Antarctica. Also, it really evokes the immigrant experience in New York, as well as this extraordinary period in American history when so much of the world was still undiscovered, and explorers, mostly armed with guile and crude technology, were our national heroes. Uh, as you know, most of the nonfiction I read, in fact, I read nonfiction almost exclusively here at PW. It's part of my job. Uh, I'll be blunt this year. It's been depressing. It's been filled with political books and stories about America's decline and social disintegration. Uh, but this fascinating book, The Stowaway, uh, really saved my reading year because it was an incredible story and it offered this really great reminder that American exceptionalism once had real meaning. Well, exceptional reporting and analysis is certainly what we expect from you, Andrew Albanese. Thanks for joining me today, and we look forward to your weekly appearances on CCC's Beyond the Book throughout 2018. My pleasure, as always. Coming next on Beyond the Book, can you name a business built on copyright? Most of us would probably answer from a list of so-called creative industries, but that overlooks several elephants standing in the same room. Those elephants who have grown enormous on copyright are the technology giants familiar to everyone as GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. At least, that's the contention of Jonathan Taplin, the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Google, Facebook, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. Taplin delivers the keynote address for Copyright and Technology 2018, a one-day conference coming to New York later in January that examines the influence of technology on copyright. Conference organizer Bill Rosenblatt expects Taplin to call out GAFA for taking a free ride on content. For all these big online businesses, Facebook, Twitter, Google, etc., content is an input good, and 
if you're any kind of business, you want to lower your cost of input goods. And what these big online businesses found is that they can get a lot of stuff for free if they get it directly from end users who are willing to contribute it without compensation. A preview of the Copyright and Technology Conference next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries RightsDirect and Ixis drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book. 